But we can change that. We can change that with something pretty simple. You do not need an app for this. You do not need a credit card. You do not need an 800 number. What you need is a conversation. A conversation. 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 The conversation. An exchange between great minds. Welcome to this special edition of The Conversation and Exchange. Today we will be doing a special episode based on an epistemology project that concerns the differences and similarity between the scientific theory and the political theory. Today I am joined by my friend, Mr. Miles. How are you, Miles? Hello, I am doing very fine. How about you, Tom? I'm great, thank you. Excellent, glad to hear it. Maybe to start off, Miles, could you talk about what the scientific theory is as a whole? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, technically you can say like, so So right here we're kind of differentiating two main ideas. First one is like, on one side we have scientific, uh, aka formal theories, and so, or formal science, as theories about formal science. And so these really encompass, you know, the like math, um, physics, yeah, astrophysics, chemistry, uh, yeah, again, these kind of hard sciences. Um, and and what you when you think of like theories, so say, say for example, Einstein's relativity theory, we really tend to think about these kind of uh, uh, theories in the formal sciences. So what I think is very interesting though is kind of these social sciences, right? And, uh, and so social sciences are those like say for example, sociology, anthropology, um, you can say history for, to a certain extent is a, is a social science. Um, you know, political science, of course. And so all these, all these sciences, and I like to say, when we talk about social science, I really like to think about it as a science that is, you know, based on, uh, you know, people and kind of in, in the interactions that people can have uh, in history uh, with others, um, uh, you know, and so, and so all of these things kind of interacting with each other kind of create a lot of these social science theories. But the thing is, is that, um, you know, they're, they're kind of thought a lot differently than than a lot of the formal science theories. And so we're kind of, so I think our job, you know, Tom and I, what we're trying to do today is kind of trying to clear that up and show that, and, you know, show, okay, what's similar, what's different, what even is a theory, right? Because everybody talks about theories and in a lot of the time people don't really know what they're saying. Uh, so hopefully we can try to, you know, um, uh, have a fun conversation and kind of, you know, uh, show you guys what we have learned. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, and, I've, uh, and, I've, exactly. and, and I think to start off, we might just start by the scientific theory and what's it all about. Of course, of course. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, we thought of, uh, so I think there, when we talk about scientific theory, I think there's, it's important to talk about two really important people. Uh, so the first one I would say is um, uh, Karl Popper. Oh, uh, so actually, no, before we talk about Karl Popper, who is, you know, all-time legend of, you know, scientific theories, uh, you know, I think we, we should talk about kind of the two kind of main ways of seeing science during, um, you know, before Popper, before kind of like the more um, uh, modern or even modern. contemporary, uh, yeah, the, you know, contemporary uh, uh, science philosophers. And so the, the two main courants are, um, are currents of thought are the inductive and the deductive reason. So you know, deductive, like uh, deductive philosophers, for example, would include Descartes. And so basically what, you know, deduction is, is like, so you have, uh, you know, different axioms or 
things. Uh, and basically with those uh, axioms, you deduce something based off of those original ideas, right? Uh, and, so, and so you can kind of figure out how the world works and what is the world based off of, um, you know, kind of these axioms. So, you know, uh, so for example, Descartes, what he tried to do was he, he said, um, you know, cogito ergo assume. So I think therefore I am. And so he came from this kind of very principal idea and tried to, um, he tried to prove God, the existence of God, which did not work. We, we you know, so we're not going to go through that tangent, but it's a very interesting conversation that we saw in philosophy class uh, with our teacher, Monsieur de Denon. But, and, and he, he also tried to kind of prove the, uh, you know, a lot of different things based off of, you know, kind of this, uh, you know, these axioms, right? Uh, and these kind of uh, starting ideas. Uh, and so, and so that's, that's deductive reasoning. And then what, uh, inductive reasoning. So what is inductive reasoning? Inductive reasoning is um, basically from observation, deducing, so deducing something about the world based off of one's observations. So say, for example, if, if I see, okay, so say, for example, every single swan I've seen in my life is white, I'm going to be like, okay, yeah. all swans are white. That would be, that would be an inductive uh, um, argue, uh, you know, reasoning right there. Reasoning. Uh, and yeah, re yeah. Thank you, thank you, Tom. And so, basically, the thing is, is that uh, both systems have problems, right? So deductive reasoning. The problem is, is that, uh, well, you know, I guess, I guess, kind of the starting axioms are, you know, they're very hard to come by. And once you do come by them, it's like, it's, you know, uh, you know, what are you going to do with them, right? So, say for example, I think therefore I am. You can't really do anything you know, in, in terms of deducing the nature of existence, it's very, you, you can't really, you know, I mean, it's an interesting idea, right? But you can't really deduce anything about the nature of the world based off of, based off of that idea. And so deduction is very difficult because you don't have access to, uh, to the whole wealth and kind of, you know, all of, you know, the possible information, right? You only have access to a limited amount of information. Uh, and, so, and then the problem with, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, Tom, I've been talking a lot. No, no, so, so I think all of, what you've said is and great, but nowadays after those, the separation between deductive and inductive reasoning, we arrive to the modern theories, sure. which would be, yeah. which are what we're going to be studying more in focused throughout the episode. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So again, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, so I'm just going to talk about the problem of inductive reasoning. Uh, <laughs> a bit Sorry. So yeah. So inductive reasoning, um, just before we get on to the more modern, uh, uh, ideas is the problem with inductive reasoning is that just because you saw something a hundred thousand million times does not mean it is you know it does not mean it's a true thing true. Uh, so this is like the classic uh chorality is cor correlation is not causality right so um and this is uh you know very you know it's a very logical thing to say right to so say for example um uh, I guess I guess a modern example, though this would be kind of controversial, would be say for example like the blood clots and the Johnson Johnson vaccine, right? So there are like six yeah. vaccines, there's six blood clots, right? Uh, and you know those, and so yeah, and so like the John, yeah, so the U.S. government said, okay, we're not going, we're going to close, stop the Johnson Johnson vaccine because there are six out of six million, right? So, but the thing is, is that just because the six people had blood clots does not mean that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine causes blood clots. Um, again, I'm not a public health expert, but uh, you know, just if we just take this, you know, sim you know, this uh, this idea 
um, we, we, you know, just without the science, right? So just because some, you observe something doesn't mean it is actually reality. And, and that is something that um, is very common, kind of observing a correlation um, when causality is not there. And so that's like a huge problem with inductive reasoning. Would you, would you agree with that, Tom? Yeah, no, I think, I think it's a major problem what you've, what you've talked about. And I think the fact that in the past, the main difference in the way we look at scientific theory is separating between those two theories that you've described perfectly well is extremely interesting because it's a complete split. Whereas what we're going to see now is that there is a full process that has been developed, whether it would be through the um, Karl Popper scientific method or through Kuhn's theory of the paradigms. And I think those two show sure. an evolution in the science that are also shown in Kuhn's model. All right, so, so you just talked about uh, Kuhn. So, uh, I mean, I, I, love, I love Popper, but like, let's, let's, hear, let's talk about Kuhn first. Do you wanna, do you wanna yeah. give, give it a dab? I'll give it, okay. So what we've looked, what we know about Kuhn's theory is that he's studying the changes in what we call science. So we're gonna start off with what is known at the time, which we're gonna call that a normal science. Then there's gonna be what he calls a crisis. And that crisis is gonna be caused by a revolution in the science. And that revolution is gonna change what we understood as to be the laws that we use in, in our day. And so the, based on the crisis and the revolutionary science, we arrive at a new normal science. For example, the example of the sun and Mars revolving around Earth was in the past known as normal science, whereas after the crisis, we have discovered that it is actually the Earth and Mars who are rotating around the sun. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, yeah, I mean, no, no, that's great. You know, and, and I, I, you know, kind of this idea about how like normal science and what is normal uh, kind of varies throughout time. I think, you know, just before we go on to the other one, I think another great example, let's just take back to Descartes. And so, right, Descartes yeah. had, to, you know, Descartes tried to prove the existence of God, right? And the thing is, is that the reason for this is because um, even though his, exist his, his proof was not very good, and in many ways is a tautology, uh, the, the problem is, is, the thing is, is that Descartes is in this paradigm, right? Because at the time, you can't just say God doesn't exist because, you know, society and, and really everything kind of life in general is, and science itself is founded on the idea that God is at the center of, of everything. And so saying that God doesn't exist is, is inherently unscientific for a science, as uh, you know, as, uh, as, uh, a, scientist. Sci a scientist. Yeah, sorry, thank you, Tom. And so, and so that isn't you know, that is another perfect example of you know um, being stuck in a paradigm and how it's you know how sometimes it's necessary to have these paradigm shifts to understand more about science. Uh, now let's talk about uh, let's talk about Popper. Do you want to, Tom? Do you want to talk about the kind of Popper's main? Uh, you know, main theory? So yeah, so Karl Popper brings in a new theory which bases the science based on refutability, which is doing a whole process to go from your observation to find a question. And once you have your main question that you'll be studying, you're gonna make an hypothesis. And after that hypothesis, you're gonna do prediction and experiments to test whether that hypothesis is true or not, whether it is supported or rejected, either if it's supported, you're gonna answer your question because you're gonna have 
you found a solution. And if it's rejected, then you go through the process again, through hypothesis, prediction, experiments. And that way you are going to be able to find the answer to your question, not by thinking about it, but through a scientific method, which now we use in everyday science from the youngest age. Yeah, so I think, so I, I think you know, there are uh, two very important things to mention when it comes to Popper. There's the idea of refutability, as Tom said, but there's also the idea of risk. And, and, you know, yeah. and, and so you kind of, and so each theory has to have a certain amount of both of them. And, and so I mean by risk, of course, is like the ability to reproduce a certain, ex, you know, say experiment, for example. Um, and so say, for example, a theory has to therefore predict something, right? So, um, so yeah, but let's, yeah, talk, let's have, talk about, yeah. You're going to have to be wrong at some point in order for your theory to be proved right. And that's the whole. Yeah, exa exactly. That's, that's the thing. And that's, that's the whole yeah, concept behind refutability is that um, the thing is, is that you can never really be sure, a hundred percent sure about if something uh, exists or not, or if, if it's a true meaning behind something. But, but that said, every time you try to refute your thesis or your hypothesis, sorry, every time you try to refute it, what happens is, is that you, um, uh, that you get closer to the truth because uh, A, you, the, you know, the hypothesis stands and uh, the refutation doesn't work, right? In which case yeah. you're in fact closer to the truth, right? In, in, in which case you are closer to, um, you know, the answer. one step, yeah, one step closer to the answer. Or the, it's the other case, which, you know, right, it's you're proved wrong. Uh, you're proved wrong. And I, as Tom said, again, you learned something. So again, it's, it's you know, we actually know things concretely. Um, and, and so then again, there's another idea of a prediction. And so, you know, these, a theory has to be able to predict something. Otherwise, there's no point in it, right? You know, there's no, uh, there's like the risk is minimal and it's not very interesting, right? Because it's like, okay, if, if there's no, if there's zero risk in a theory, then who cares? Because that's, you know, there's, it's just, it's not something worth knowing. So, so yeah, theory because... has to have a certain amount of risk by if it wants, you know, because that means that it has to predict something and that's where the interesting stuff is. Exactly. The goal of the scientific theory is to answer a question that was not answered in the past. And to do that, you're going to have to find a solution going through that process. Because at the end of the day, you want to find something. You do not want to prove something that everybody knows as a law because it's already been proven a thousand times. Of course. And so the thing is, is that, again, before we, we you know, finish with the, with the formal theories, um, I, you know, I, I think it's worth mentioning. So, so what about our two problems? What about the deductive problem? What about the inductive problem? Well, the inductive problem itself, because, you know, again, so, you know, we can't, uh, you know, we still use inductive reasoning to a certain extent, right? We, we observe things, right? And then we, and then basically because with our observations or with our, you know, creativity, we can kind of find a solution, which is our hypothesis. And so in many ways we're, you know, we're, you know, we're inducing things, but at the same time, we're not, uh, we don't use, you know, we don't use inductive reasoning to this, to the extent that it becomes a problem, right? So we're not using our observations to conclude something about you know the world. It may help us in terms of explaining what it is, and then and then trying to refute that. But it's not making a conclusion about the world. So we do not have that inductive uh, reasoning problem. All right. So I think yeah. So I think that mostly concludes you know about our formal theory scientific uh, speak. Uh, <laughs> wow, I have I yeah. have lost grammar ability. But um, I, again, so I think the last thing you mentioned is that. You know, it's impossible with this theory to the, the one limit I would say is that although it does solve 
both both problems. Um, the one limit is that uh, you can't know everything with this theory. You know, again, you can't ever come to a hundred percent certainty about things, but you can come to a certainty where it's like ninety nine point nine nine, where you are still you are still you know fairly certain enough that in the practical world, um, you know, the theory holds true. Uh, okay, so perfect. So we spent a lot of time on on the formal scientific theories. Uh, let's let's now, hop over to the social theories, right? Exactly. Yeah. Let, let's move on to the social theory. And I think the first point to do to do is to define what a social theory is. And I think we should start off by saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a social theory can be defined as a scientific theory. But rather than talking about science, it speaks about the social aspect such as politics, sociology, economy, history, and all the aspects that you've talked about in the introduction that fit under the characteristics of what is social. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great way to say it. Um, and again, so, so what was, so, you know, we concluded on Popper and what was, and if, yeah. if I remember one thing that was really important with Popper was that you have to, you have to predict an, an event. So of course there's this idea of repeatability, right? And uh, prediction. And so those two concepts are really, I think, the keys to understanding uh, Popper. Of course, there's, you know, he talks about more things, right? But, you know, I think those two concepts are very important. So, you know, if we're, if we're kind of using, you know, um, the, you know sci the formal sciences as kind of a base to understand the social sciences, we have to really look for those two things, reputability and prediction in social sciences. And so, and, and so I kind of approach this from a prediction angle. And so I, I concluded that, you know, there are kind of two types of uh, social science theories, right? The first one is the theories that are so-called uh, prophetic. And so these theories basically use tendencies uh, in history to predict the future. Um, so these, these theories are by nature uh, inductive because, you know, they're using observations and things in the past to conclude, to have to make conclusions about the world of today. And again, there's plenty of problems with that. Uh, like, yeah, like an example, but yeah. Yeah, it's like conditional theory, whereas you're saying, yeah. well, if this happens, then why is going to happen? Oh, no, no, no. Not, not yet, Tom. Tom's getting too ahead of himself. Tom's getting too ahead of himself because right now we're talking about number. That is number two, Tom. Okay, but we, uh, and so, again, so uh, Tom, he's he just, he wants to talk about it all. Uh, so for, okay. for number one. I just, so I'm just, before we get there, there's one thing I have to yeah, mention go. that I think let's get, let's get some examples. Everybody loves examples. Um, so again, I think a great example for one, and I was about to say was that, um, you know, these prophetic theories are very common actually, even though they seem kind of, you know, not great because they're inductive, right? Uh, and so for example, a theory would be Marx's law on uh, historical development. So Marx theorizes that well, one, that, history is purely economics, but two, um, that, and he makes a prediction. He says that this, you know, at the end, uh, because of his, you know, his uh, um, analysis, he believes that the world will eventually become uh, communist, you know, communist, right? And he has this teleo uh, teleology of, of communism that the whole world over time will become communist because, you know, the workers will, uh, those, you know, will seize the means of production and so on. And so, uh, again, you know, it just, uh, you know, these theories are very common. And so, you know, I think a lot of people have debunked the theory, but, uh, I, you know, just to, I think for me, before we get into it, and before we get into the analysis, the first, 
you know, type of theory prophetics are, you know, prophetic theories are very, are, are not scientifically great. So let's talk about a second theory. And so Tom, I'll let Tom talk about this. Here we go. Tom was very excited to talk about it. Yeah, so the second theory we're going to look at is the conditional theory, whereas you're going to determine that if something happens, we're going to call that event X, then automatically Y is going to happen. And that way of processing information is extremely common in economics. For example, if we look at economic growth, we're going to see that something has caused it. And based, for example, on population growth, unemployment rate, employment rate, we're going to be able to predict what later on is going to happen in the economy. So that first event we're going to call X and the, whether it would be inflation, deflation, economic growth, or the other way around, we're going to call that event Y. And that's conditional theory, which is also based here on numbers. If we're going to use economics as the example. Yeah. So yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it's, you know, you have something that it's, see, the thing is, is that what's different is that conditional theory is, versus prophetic theory is prophetic theory is what would happen and conditional theory is what may happen. And so the difference is astronomical because what may happen is um, it's uh, contingent, right? It doesn't, it, it's not necessarily going to happen. Going to happen. Uh, and so that, that leaves the, you know, and it makes it a possible thing that could happen among many possibilities. And so it makes it, uh, makes these theories a lot, a lot of the time more feasible and more, more realistic. Um, uh, yeah, so of course I have, you know, you guys have already seen my bias, but now let's, let's go on to, um, uh, to um, you know, we can, do we talk about uh, an example of uh, uh, social theory uh, in politics, uh, political theory? Yes, sir. So we're going to study a bit, uh, to illustrate the example of the social theory, we're going to study the political theory, which fits under the characteristics. And a th political theory is a theory that has been determined in order to explain real facts related to either politics, laws, justice, and all that domain of the executive, the legislative, and all the bodies of government. And I think the theory, the political theory has a foundation inside of the ju judicial system. And that foundation inside of it is extremely important when we're going to study the theory of politics. Yeah, uh, and so, yeah, you know, it, it's just yeah, I think it's yeah. an interesting uh, uh, example because you know it um, uh, it uses you know it uses um, science, you know, it, yeah, science, and it, you know it, it's I don't know I think I think it's just you know uh, very interesting to look at like Plato, Rawls, uh, all these all these people who've kind of. And you know they bring in these ideas of justice into it, and so a lot of the time, you know, these theory, you know, say a theory like you know, uh, social theories are often influenced by philosophy because, say, in political theory, you need a definition of justice, right? So a lot of the time, I think this example is interesting because it shows that often, you know, a lot of these social theories uh, need stuff that kind of, in many ways, um, is very difficult to define in, in, in some some very abstract. Um, okay concepts that you that you need to have um yeah so yeah. so let's and now let's talk about yeah, yeah let me yeah. just let me just add in when we're trying to define political theory we're a lot of the times looking how to define authority power and the ability of the head of state and i think even those those theories have an 
origin inside of what is called philosophical politics, at the end of the day, those theories are in, put in place in order to explain uh, an image that is in our everyday life, which in this case is government. Yeah, of course. Um, okay, so, so let's, let's talk maybe, about... Yeah, yeah quantifiability. Like, can yes. we quantify them, the social theories, of course? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about that. So, so basically... Um, so yeah, yeah that's, that's one thing that's very interesting because in one big difference you can say is that in most formal you know theories of you know formal science uh you have it's almost it's very very often quantifiable um so it's very it may, and that also makes it a lot easier to prove the theories right or to to have experiments and to to say like it's refuted or to not refute it right because you can um you have all these mathematical tools to help you out. That said, with a lot of the time, with a lot of these social theories, you don't really necessarily have these, these tools. Um, but I think it's worth, uh, worth mentioning uh, economics because economics is often kind of a, a middle ground between uh, you know, the social sciences, history, and, and um, mathematics. And so, because economics uses, is, is a social science, but it uses a lot of mathematical tools. And it's the one kind of study, you know, social science study that can kind of use quantifiable tools to, you know, have conclusions, to make conclusions, you know, to um, uh, verify certain conclusion. results. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Using the method that you've talked, that we've talked about in the yeah, middle, yeah, exactly, which is exactly. in the so, beginning, so. So, you know, often I think it's interesting to kind of, if you want to look at how feasible a social science theory is, you know, kind of differentiate the economic ones and the social science ones, because, you know, they're, they're using, a lot of times they're using different methods or they're using different arguments. And I would even say, uh, before we get to the problems about social theories, or even if they're, you know, good or, or whatnot, um, uh, it, you know, the, they're often, if, if you're going to see, like, a social theory, it's often the economic ones that are going to be uh, more, more or less feasible or real or, um, or ones that kind of uh, you're able to refute, uh, which is a good thing in, uh, in trying to find out theories. All right, so let's let's get to it. Let's get to the let's get to the most interesting part. What are our conclusions on social theories? Are they different from formal sciences? Are they the same? Let's get into it, Tom. Yeah. So in the beginning, we were talking about, and our, and our main goal of this podcast is to show the differences between the two theories that we've talked about and explained to you in details. I think the major problem that we're going to start off is the problem of the experimentation. In the Popper model that we've talked about in the beginning and I've died, that I've tried to explain, we're talking about finding a problem and putting a hypothesis and doing experiments in order to find whether that hypothesis was right or not. In the case of social theories, we cannot apply that because we can't do an experiment on earth about a theory, I don't know, about a political regime. We can't take a country and put people in it and test whether that regime works or not. It's not feasible. Yeah. What do you think, Miles? Any other? Uh, regarding experimentation? No, regarding problems in general with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, sorry, I was, I was blanking out a bit. But I mean, you mentioned, uh, yeah, like the generalization problem, right? Yeah, yeah. of course. So, yeah, yeah. So, again, uh, another example um, I think is interesting is uh, the Marx one. And so, 
because Marx in his theories, um, he actually used, um, he used the interactions, the interclass interactions in England between, you know, different social classes. And the problem with that was that he generalized English history with the totality of civilization ever. And so, of course, you have a, you know, that's a big problem, right? Because you can't just, yeah. um, you can't just look at something and then conclude that's, that's the same thing for everybody. Um, uh, and so, so you can, so I think that's, that's often a problem that many people in social theories fall into. Um, yeah. So, so, it, so I, I think another problem is, is that, um, is I think confirmation bias is another one. And a lot of the time, you know, these social theory people, uh, people who make these social theories, they kind of fall into this trap of, um, of being unscientific in the sense that their personal beliefs or their personal agenda gets in the way of them uh, making it a strong theory. And so, again, this, you know, um, uh, we'll see some, if hopefully we don't have any uh, Hayek fans, Friedrich Hayek, Hayek fans in this crowd, uh, because, uh, uh, yeah, uh, so basically, so Hayek, so again, so I was reading this book called yeah, ex ex explain it. Become, exactly. The Origins of Political Order. And this is you know, it's going to be it's going to get a bit complicated. Basically, what Hayek says is that he theorizes that um, he, he he says that that law and, and the rule of law wasn't created by uh, you know a constructivist mindset or you know rationalistic one, um, where rational people get together and they make the law. He argues that in fact what happens is it's it's that um, it's a lot more random and um, Judges uh, over time make the individual decision to uh, make rulings, and over time, this kind of creates a law. So Hayek himself again made a similar uh, mistake to, to Marx, although they're they're kind of opposites on the political spectrum, and uh, so it's kind of ironic. But and he used the English system to make conclusions about everything else, and so he used you know the English you know, uh, the um, I I don't know how the, how the court system is called, but he used the same system. Yeah, and the thing is is that and so Fukuyama talks about how. Um, basically, uh, that even in that system, it, that's not how it was, you know, in, in reality, because um, it wasn't individual judges who were doing what they were doing. It was, um, it was this very complex um, situation in England at the time, uh, you know, the rule of law was because, um, uh, you know, the, the kings and, you know, the, the you know, judicial system had this very um, kind of, you know, very particular uh, relationship that, that made it that, um, you know, the, the kings were controlled the judicial system, but the judicial system was also controlled the kings. So you had these kind of like almost these checks and balances um, in a way. So uh, that different, and so this, you know, differentiated from, you know, the rest of the world, but it also, it's, but even with that, it didn't mean that, um, you know, that, that the, the, the judicial system was one where, you um, uh, laws were, were made kind of haphazardly by, you know, ju by judges over time um, or, you know, by the use of precedents, for example. And, uh, 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 yeah, uh, another, another yeah. interesting law, because I, I may have uh, not, oh, not said it right, because it's, it's, you know, very, again, very complicated discussion on the rule of law. Another one that I think is um, more approachable is, is uh, what uh, Moncourt Olson talks about, um, and his model of political development. And he says that basically he, he makes a claim that China uh, or that, um, you know, that tribal level societies are essentially 
um, you know, these are, are the, you know, the barbarians that try to make the most money off of people by taxing them the most. And then, uh, and he, and he says that, for example, China uh, is, is an example of this where, you know, the government is, you know, kind of these big authoritarian governments are, uh, their, you know, their one goal was, uh, you know, taxing people the most. Uh, and, and yeah, uh, either way, in both cases, the theory isn't really important. What I'm trying to show is that uh, in Olson's case, um, so again, he was approaching this from a, uh, I believe, a Marxist point of view, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, the thing is, is that, um, you know, both of these people, you know, and in Hayek, so Olson Hayek, um, what they said was, number one, uh, not true if you actually look at the evidence, but, but number two, what they were doing is they were trying to kind of um, take the easy answer, right? So they had a model yeah. of the world that they had. So Hayek was very much a libertarian, right? And he's, he's, the, found, he's, he's the foundation of much liberal, you know, liberalistic thought in, in America. And so he was trying to find ways to be like, okay, what are, what are examples in history where uh, libertarianism is this king. And so he tried to find, he tried to nitpick history where he can find this. And, and Olson, for example, on the other hand, was like, um, you know, was trying to find examples that supported his, his own theory on economics. Um, and so oh, just, so, to, you know, just to, yeah. Yeah, so it's extremely selective based on the, not yeah. what I'm saying, let me restart. It, the information used as evidence for the theory is extremely specific, making the general theory too specific on evidence. And it's just nitpicking what interests you. It's like the news. Exactly, exactly. And that's, as, and that's the one problem with induction I was trying to get back earlier and I forgot to say was that you can always find, you know, sources or things that corroborate your evidence. Um, yeah. You know, everybody's saying, you know, because what you have like 7 billion people, everybody you know, anybody can say anything and, and people often just take, they see something on TV and they're like, oh, that's it. And, and, you know, whatever, you know, you can, if you can always find, if you're, if you're looking hard enough, you can always find um, the answer you something. are looking for, right? The answer that, that goes, that corroborates your uh, point, point of, of view. And so that's a big problem with social sciences because in, you know, in my opinion, I think most of the people who make these theories are very much influenced by, uh, you know, their their point of view, or they and they, they may not be necessarily doing it for the wrong reasons, but they're they have this this certain outlook on life, or this lens that they see things through, and that lens affects um, affects what they say about history and what they conclude about it. So, um, uh, you know, before we get on to our conclusion, I think it's just important to mention uh, Karl Popper's uh, scientific. Um, I'm just going to read it to you guys because it's, it's very, very ahead, scientific uh, um, refutation of any social theory. It's very, it's actually very clean. So number one, the course of human history is strongly influenced by the growth of human knowledge. Tom, would you say that's like a, that's a, that's a strong, you know, it's a point that yeah. makes sense, right? Yeah, based um, on what we've said. Refuting yeah, I mean, when you find, yeah, Kuhn is literally that, right? Of course, the human history is strongly influenced by the growth of knowledge. Number two, we cannot predict by rational or scientific methods the future growth of our scientific knowledge. All right, so this one he specifies here that he can't uh, he can't prove it logically, but he will he does in a separate book, which I haven't had yet. So um, you'll uh, you'll have to talk to me another time when I read the, the next book. But but I mean this this also is like very self-evident. 
Yeah, exactly. But this, this seems like a very self-evident argument, right? Um, I can't predict in a hundred years which scientific uh, innovations will be made. That seems almost absurd, right? Yeah. And so he says, number three, we cannot therefore predict the future course of human history. Because, you know, number one, say if we have, if we don't know what, what's, you know, what human knowledge is, and, you know, by extension, we don't know what uh, scientific knowledge we're going to have. I, I can't, you know, we're, you know, we're, it's basically, it's again, it's basically going back to Kuhn, right? We cannot predict, yeah. you know, we cannot, we're in this paradigm, right? And we don't know which paradigm we're going to be in 200, 300 years. And so, and so because paradigm shifts affect what we think of as normal or not, you know, it's, it's very much impossible to kind of know what's going to happen in terms of, you know, us as people and what we're going to do and what our history and our future will, will entail. And so he says that number four, this means that we just, we must reject the possibility of a theoretical history, that is to say of a historical social science that would correspond to theoretical physics. There can be no scientific theory or historical development serving as a basis for historical prediction. So, and then, number, and, yeah, and so, um, uh, and so, yeah. And so I think yeah, 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 yeah. And that, that's it, that's it. And that's, that's the theory. I think it's very well made and I think it proves the, that, you know, the prophetic theories at least are, are mostly uh, a bunch of bogus. Yeah, and it proves exactly that there are core differences from the definition of what is the difference between a social theory and a scientific one. I think, Miles, unless you have something else to say, I think it's a good place to end it. Yeah, I think, I'm, again, so, I'm sorry, Tom, that sometimes I like to talk a lot. Uh, your knowledge, is, you Miles, know. is beyond the point and makes so much more sense now than it, was, than it did before. Oh, well, Thank you for the deep explanation. Though. As always, thank you, Miles. The conversation episodes are produced by Graham Foote, Mark Warhab, and Tom Clare. This one will be edited by myself, Tom. The whole Conversation and Exchange podcast is directed by Miles Baratier. I'm Tom Clare. Good night.